The views and opinions of findings and or devices discussed in this podcast are those of the host, subject matter experts, and or guests. Facts represented constitute our understanding as of the time of the podcast, whereas updated factual information may be developed. They should not be construed as pronouncing an official Department of Defense's position, policy, decision, or endorsement. Hi, and welcome to Clinical Updates in Brain Injury Science Today, or CUBIST, a podcast for healthcare providers about current research on traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. This program is produced by the TBI Center of Excellence, or TBI-COE. I'm your host today, Amanda Ganell. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Donald Marion, a neurosurgeon and TBI subject matter expert at TBI-COE. Don and I will discuss a study entitled Traumatic Brain Injury and Long-Term Risk of Stroke Among U.S. Military Service Members, written by Andrea Schneider and her colleagues and published in the journal Stroke in August of 2023. In addition, we're really grateful to have our senior biostatistician at TBICOE, Mr. Brian Ivins, join us today to help us decipher some of the biostatistical issues that were raised by this study. So thanks for joining us, Brian. All right, Don, thanks for bringing this article to our attention today. To kick us off, why was this study done? Hi, Amanda. As you well know, many service members and veterans are concerned about the long-term effects of TBI and specifically about developing diseases like Alzheimer's disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and similar diseases that have not been proven to be associated with concussion in the military. The authors of this study went in a slightly different direction and asked if there was an association of TBI or TBI severity and having a stroke later in life, and if that risk varied depending on age, sex, race, ethnicity, or time since the TBI diagnosis. Yeah, another important question that I'm sure our service members will have high interest in. So how was this study done? Amanda, this was a retrospective cohort study of U.S. military veterans aged greater than or equal to 18 years using ICD-9 and ICD-10 data from two nationwide Veterans Health Administration System databases, the Inpatient and Outpatient Visits Database, or what's called the National Patient Care Databases, and the Vital Status File. Of the 2,045,903 veterans with at least one Veterans Health System visit between October 1st, 2002 and September 30th, 2019, they excluded 74,000 with a history of stroke at their first VA system visit and 171,000 with no follow-up visit in the Veterans Health Administration System, leaving 1,800,000 veterans of whom 357,158 had a TBI diagnosis, and 1,443,000 did not have a TBI diagnosis. The index date for entry into follow-up was defined as the first TBI diagnosis date for individuals who sustained a TBI. For individuals that did not have a TBI diagnosis, the index date for entry into follow-up was defined as a randomly selected healthcare encounter visit date that occurred within one year of the matched individual's index TBI diagnosis date. All eligible individuals were required to have had at least one visit in the Veterans Administration system within the two years before the index date to define prevalent medical comorbidities. The authors performed a one-to-one matching of veterans with a TBI diagnosis to veterans without a TBI diagnosis in terms of age, sex, race, and ethnicity, as well as index date, 
resulting in 306,796 veterans with a TBI diagnosis and 306,796 veterans without a TBI diagnosis that were included for this analysis. Overall, participants had a mean age of 50 years, 9% were female, and 25% were of non-white race and ethnicity. The ICD code-based definition for TBI is consistent with what is used by the TBI-COE Surveillance Office and has been previously validated. Similarly, the stroke definition used were defined in accordance with the Da Vinci Project Phenotype Library definition and the use of ICD codes to help identify acute stroke events has been shown to have very high sensitivity and specificity. Zip codes and 2012 U.S. Census data were used to categorize each veteran's address into median annual income and education categories. Income was categorized as living in a zip code with a median annual income of less than $25,930, the lowest tertile, versus greater than $25,930, which were included in the middle and highest tertiles. Education was categorized as less than 25% versus greater than 25% of residents in the zip code, a bachelor's degree, or higher education. Current smoking, medical comorbidities such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, atrial fibrillation, and coronary artery disease comprised of myocardial infarction, cardiac arrest, coronary atherosclerosis, and coronary artery bypass grafting procedure codes, and psychiatric comorbidities such as post-traumatic stress disorder and depression were defined using ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes from encounters occurring during the two-year period before the index date. Thanks for that, Don. It sounds like they had a lot of data to analyze. So what did they find after they did their analysis? So, Amanda, the first thing to emphasize, and I really want to make a point of this, and Brian will comment on it in a minute, is that the veterans with a TBI were more likely than veterans without a TBI to be current smokers, and that's 19% versus 13%, have hypertension at 38% versus 31%, have hyperlipidemia 34% versus 29%, and have atrial fibrillation, and that's 4% versus 2%. In other words, Amanda, those with a TBI history were also more likely to have medical and social problems that are well-known risk factors for stroke. And veterans with TBI were much more likely than veterans without TBI to have comorbid post-traumatic stress disorder, 36% versus 10%, and depression, or 36% versus 16%, which also are risk factors for stroke independent of TBI. Now, to account for these comorbidities, the investigators used two different statistical methods designed to consider the impact of those comorbidities on the outcome of interest, namely the Cox and the fine gray proportional hazards models. Overall, 4.7% of veterans developed a stroke over a median follow-up of 5.2 years. A total of 18,435 stroke events occurred over 1,787,238 person years of follow-up among veterans with TBI, compared to 10,297 stroke events occurring over 1,800,490 person years of follow-up among veterans without TBI. 
the incidence was consistently increased among veterans with TBI versus without TBI for any stroke, as well as for ischemic stroke alone and hemorrhagic stroke alone. Veterans with TBI had a 1.8 times increased risk of any stroke compared to veterans without TBI. After accounting for the competing risk of death in adjusted fine gray proportional hazards models, veterans with TBI had 1.69 times increased risk of any stroke compared with veterans without TBI. Similar patterns were observed for the secondary individual outcomes of ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke, with association of TBI with hemorrhagic stroke being stronger than the associations of TBI with ischemic stroke. These associations were strongest among older veterans, age 65 plus years, compared to younger individuals, and were weaker among non-Hispanic black individuals as compared to other race and ethnicities. Similar patterns were seen by age, race, and ethnicity for the association of TBI with ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke individually. I should emphasize that the lower risk of stroke observed among black veterans is noteworthy because that group usually is at higher risk for stroke from other risk factors. In secondary analysis, Amanda, veterans with moderate, severe, or penetrating head injury had a two-fold increased risk, and veterans with mild injury had a 1.5-fold increased risk of any stroke compared to veterans without TBI. Similar patterns were observed for associations of TBI severity with ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke. The highest risk of any stroke, as well as each individual stroke type, occurred in the first year post-injury, but risk remained elevated for 10-plus years. As previously mentioned, Amanda, veterans with a TBI diagnosis had a higher prevalence of hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and atrial fibrillation compared to veterans without a TBI diagnosis. But even after accounting for these factors in their statistical models, the elevated risk of stroke associated with TBI remained. So, for example, if you did not factor in the other risk factors such as AFib or the unadjusted model, there was an eightfold increase in the risk of stroke for those with a TBI. But when you did consider these independent risk factors or the adjusted model, there was still a 1.5 to 1.6-fold increase in the risk of stroke among those with a history of TBI. Thanks, Don. There was a lot of data there and a lot of things to consider. Brian, would you mind commenting on the appropriateness of the statistical methods that were used in this paper to establish the impact of TBI on the risk of stroke? In other words, were there any potential flaws in their statistical analyses that might suggest that TBI is actually not an independent risk factor? Thank you, Amanda. A limitation, in my opinion, that the authors do not state is that they did not show stroke rates by age. They acknowledge that veterans over age 65 had a higher incidence of stroke, which is what we would expect to see, but they don't show any data about it. The incidence of stroke in the older veterans is likely higher than among younger veterans. I'm surprised they did not show this in more detail. Breaking out the separate age groups would have diluted their sample size, which is a purported strength of their analysis. So I think this is a bit of a concern if much or most of the sample consists of veterans under age 65, because they're boosting total sample size by including age groups less likely to have a stroke. And that's simply as a matter of age, because age is also a major risk factor for stroke. The large sample size would be a real strength if they had 2 million veterans over age 65, but they do not. 
Another major weakness of this paper is that they lumped everyone together and show results from a multivariate analysis. Again, it's concerning to utilize a large sample size and not report the incidence of stroke by age, which they should have done. I also want to point out that the fine gray proportional hazards model for accounting for other risk factors is normally applied to risk factors of death, not stroke, unless the stroke resulted in death. So it is a way of adjusting risk ratios, or in this case, hazard ratios, for other competing risk factors for death. I suppose the authors could have applied the fine gray method to competing risk factors for stroke, such as hypertension, but they didn't say that they did that. The authors do show separate hazard ratios for the effect of TBI in their different age groups, but they don't show the actual incidence of TBI in each age group. This is an example of what I mean by lack of details that might show some nuance that is masked by lumping everything into a single model. For example, the risk of stroke due to TBI in younger veterans may be heavily influenced by TBI severity. However, they don't show basic data on this. It's possible that the risk of stroke for more severe TBI is higher in younger veterans simply because stroke is less common in younger people simply as a matter of being younger. The risk of stroke due to TBI severity may be lower overall in veterans over age 65 simply because stroke is more prevalent in older people. The use of person time could also be a confounder in this analysis. While it is important to include exposure time to a risk factor in an epidemiologic study, the importance of time depends on the role time plays as a risk factor for the disease you're studying. So for example, in a study such as this, age is certainly going to be a risk factor for stroke. The important question is whether including age is sufficient as a measure of time as a risk factor, or does actual exposure time in the VA system following a TBI diagnosis contribute to the risk? Again, this is where showing more details about the length of time from TBI to stroke by age would be important. For example, older veterans may have had more exposure to the VA health system between their TBI and stroke than younger veterans. This increased exposure time could partly, if not mostly, be a function of being older. So that is, being older also increases your time as a patient in the VA health system. Therefore, the use of person time might be problematic if older veterans in the system were in there longer than the younger veterans. And if the time between TBI and stroke was longer in older veterans than younger veterans. This could actually lead to the appearance of a lower incidence of stroke in older veterans with person time as the measure rather than using people as the measure. Thanks, Brian. Those are all really good points to bring up, especially about age not being a factor in their analysis. I think that's really important to consider. So I know Brian brought up several limitations here, but Don, do you have any other limitations of the study to make our listeners aware of? Sure, Amanda. I would add that the study was performed in a cohort of U.S. military veterans receiving health care within the Veterans Health Administration system and did not capture TBI or stroke events in veterans who received their care outside of the VA system. And the magnitude of bias attributable to these non-captured events is not known. Veterans who receive non-VA health care tend to be younger and have higher levels of education and have alternative sources of healthcare coverage compared to veterans who solely receive their healthcare within the VA system. Thus, the generalizability of these results to populations beyond veterans receiving healthcare in the VA needs to be determined. 
Moreover, the study population was comprised of only 9% women, further limiting their generalizability, certainly, to women. The TBI and stroke definitions used in the study are ICD code-based, and the study does not include specific details regarding history of prior remote TBIs, injury mechanism, or TBI or stroke treatment. Since all TBI cases were identified via ICD codes, it is certainly possible that these results may not generalize to more mild TBIs, which often do not necessitate medical treatment, so those people with mild concussions aren't seen in the VA system and not included in this study. Finally, it's possible that individuals with TBI are at higher risk for stroke as a result of a higher prevalence of comorbid vascular risk factors due to disability and resultant decreased physical activity secondary to their injury. All right. Thanks for that, Don. And thank you both for bringing this article to our attention. I guess I am not sure what to take away from this study. Don and Brian, what do you say are the key takeaways for providers? Does TBI increase your risk of stroke? I'll let Brian touch on that, Amanda, but I would just say this. I think primary care providers should pay close attention to vascular risk factor modification and to other primary stroke prevention strategies in those with a history of TBI, just as they would in any other patient they see. But effective treatment of hypertension, atrial fibrillation, hyperlipidemia, and obesity may be even more important in veterans with a history of TBI than those without that history. Yep, that makes sense. Brian, do you have any other additional comments or key takeaways for our listeners? I want to add that the statistical analysis the authors performed is a standard type of epidemiologic analysis when studying risk of developing some kind of health condition over time. There's nothing wrong with it in a very narrow technical or statistical way. However, the results can be easily misinterpreted and overhyped by people without expertise in statistics, epidemiology, TBI, and stroke. I don't doubt that TBI is an independent risk factor for stroke, certainly in this sample that the authors use. But to be clear for our listeners, the prevalence of stroke in the TBI sample is still low. And that's what I meant earlier by not showing details about just how many strokes occurred, particularly by the age groups. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Thank you both very much. That's all the time we have for today. You can stay up to date on future episodes by subscribing to Cubist on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also find links to the articles we discuss and other relevant resources. Cubist is produced and edited by Vinnie White and was hosted today by me, Amanda Gano. It is a product of the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, a branch of the Research Portfolio Management Division under the Research and Engineering Directorate of the Defense Health Agency, led by Branch Chief Captain Scott Coda, Medical Corps, United States Navy. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you.